Heavenly Father, we are reminded of um, our need to think clearly on these things, even in this last week with um, unhelpful comments from political leaders about different places and different peoples. And so we pray as we look at Jonah, as we get to grips with it as a book and understand what lies at the heart of it, we pray most of all that we might grasp more of your grace, more of your love and your kindness for people. And as we understand that ourselves, would we be a people who live like that? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I'm I'm reading an interesting book at the moment. It's by a guy called Alan Jacobs. Um, And it's a book called, I think it's How to Think. Um, And it's looking at the idea that we are unable to disagree with each other anymore or to engage with each other in our culture. Um, So, for example, how social media lots of the time is is most of the time not about listening or rational arguments or answering questions, but simply about who can shout the loudest, who can appeal to emotion, um, and those things generally end up with um, unkind names and people being labelled in particular ways. Um, And he talks about um, repugnant cultural others, that is, people who, because of what they believe about something... Um, people whom we can't even bring ourselves to try and understand them or to engage with them. We just caricature their views and their ideas. They don't deserve to be listened to because of X, Y or Z. Um, and there we go. You, you saw it and you see it very clearly in our world in all kinds of places. We saw it in the States um, and you still do with those who are, who are pro-Trump and those who are anti-Trump. You see it on this side of the Atlantic if you are pro-Brexit or not. And the list goes on and on and on. That's the big kind of cultural, national scale. But then, on the smaller scale in our lives, the people whom we can't deal with in our lives, and so we kind of keep them as friends on social media, but we unfollow them, so we don't have to listen to them anymore. People that we mute, the people whom we avoid. I see a few smirks, so it's not just me. Life is busy and it is complicated and we don't necessarily have the time or the capacity or the inclination to um, deal with people who are not like us and so we kind of airbrush them out and put our hands over our ears and move on. And I begin like that, not as some kind of a guilt trip, but simply to make the point that our world is diverse and our area is diverse and there are kinds of people, all kinds of people out there And we don't really know how to engage with people or feel we have the capacity to engage with people. But as Matt was teaching the kids and as we thought last week, Jesus died for people like us and for people not like us. And as we said last week, the danger can be that in our churches we very easily fill up with the same kind of person people who think similarly about things as we do. And then we end up being very mono-economic, mono-educational, mono-ethnic even. And in one sense that's okay, but in another we want to love people well. We want to better love and to reach people in this area, the place that God has put us. We want to love our neighbours well. And so last week again as Matt was teaching the kids and reminding us we did something of a sort of brief Bible overview thinking about particularly ethnicity 
But the fact that God made man and woman in his image, he wanted them to fill the earth and to, to scatter, but they kind of cluster at Babel and so he helps them along. And then they unite again at Pentecost and you see little churches in the New Testament reconciling broken humanity together um, in local churches calling us to love and to forgive each other, to be unified, to be diverse. And so I want to linger today in the book of Jonah. And of course in one sense it's got nothing to do with church. In one sense. You won't look through and find the word church. But it does have a lot to say to us about who God is. About his character about his love and his grace and his generosity and his kindness and how that perhaps needs to affect us more and about who we are and the tendencies that we might have in our hearts, how we perhaps ought to treat others. So if you've not got it open, do turn up um, Jonah with me. It's page, I think, 928 if you have one of these Burgundy Bibles. Um, And if you know the book of Jonah, you'll know it works rather like the film The Sixth Sense. So in that film, something happens near the end, I'm not going to spoil it for you, but something happens near the end that changes everything. It changes how you view the entire film and you can go and watch it again when you know this thing and suddenly everything kind of clicks into place. Well, I think so it is rather like that with Jonah. Until the final chapter, as Christine read for us, we don't really know why Jonah runs from the Lord. We don't really know why the story does what it does until you read chapter 4. So do you remember the story? Let's just try and give a bird's eye view of the whole thing. Um, It begins with the Lord calling Jonah, the prophet Jonah, to go to the great Assyrian capital city of Nineveh and to preach against them. And instead of going to Nineveh, um, as she read for us, he runs in entirely the opposite direction. He, He heads to the port of Joppa and then to Tarshish, which is basically the opposite direction as far as you can go. But we don't quite know why that is in 1 verse 3. You can speculate as to why he runs. Um, The last time we got seemingly the prophet Jonah in the pages of scripture, 2 Kings 14, he was bringing good news to the northern kingdom there. He was a prophet and under King Jeroboam he was prophesying that the borders of Israel would be restored. God would give back some of their land. Quite a nice thing for him to bring for them. A nice message. This, this second assignment that we hear of from the Lord, it's kind of a harder gig, isn't it? Maybe, maybe he's a bit conflict-averse. He's trying to avoid confrontation, and so that's why he runs. Maybe he's just fearful, fearful of failure. Little old me in big old Nineveh, just me, one person, versus the whole city of 120,000 people and many animals. What can I do, Lord? I'm out of here. Or maybe, maybe he's fearful for his life. And to be honest, who can blame him? The Assyrians, the Ninevites, the superpower of the day were unpleasant. Remarkably unpleasant. Um, I read this week they were apparently renowned for whitewashing their defeated cities with paint made from the crushed bones of those whom they had defeated. You can have a flick through Nahum a bit later and see some of what they were like. And indeed, 50 years or so later, they would come and defeat the northern kingdom and take them off into exile. And so God has said to Jonah, go to the great city of Nineveh, preach against it because its wickedness has come up before me, 1 verse 2. How would we feel? What would we do at that point? 
that assignment of heading across seas to an unpleasant city full of people whom the Lord describes as wicked. And so he flees to Joppa and then heads to Tarshish, running from the Lord, or at least trying to. And the story continues. You remember the reluctantly the, the sailors are persuaded to throw him overboard to stop this huge city, this, sorry, this huge storm that's risen up. The huge fish then comes to swallow him. And chapter 2, from the belly of this fish, he repents and he prays and comes before the Lord and is given a second chance. And that's the hinge of the book, chapter 2. You're thinking, that's great, he's got it. He's worked it out. He's a changed man. He understands the Lord now. End of chapter 2, the fish vomits Jonah onto dry land, he heads to Nineveh, he preaches, and then let me read chapter 3. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Uh, Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time, go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I gave you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very large city, it took three days to go through it and Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the last put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth and sat down in dust. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks taste anything. Don't let them eat or drink, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows, God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how he turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. You see, there's, it's beautiful, there's mass revival. That extraordinary, they hear God's word, it is so powerful, they hear his word, they believe it, they obey it, and we're 120,000 people repent, we're rejoicing, aren't we? Can you imagine that? We're thinking Billy Graham territory. Whole cities turning round, back to the Lord, changing um, how they live, and then, great, end of Jonah, on to Micah. But no, then, chapter 4, you work out why Jonah ran in the first place. Why he was so reluctant. This is why it's like the sixth sense. Let me read the start of chapter 4 again. But to Jonah this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I tried to to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I, I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. Do you get that? He would rather die than have a God who forgives people like the Assyrians. Extraordinary. He wants a God who forgives people like him. He wants second chances for him. Chapter 2 from the belly of the fish. God's grace and patience and compassion and being slow to anger, abounding in love, was good news for Jonah then, wasn't it? 
But for them, for them, for, for the Assyrians, for the Ninevites, 4 verse 2, I knew that you are gracious and compassionate, a God slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. That language, those words are, are loaded, theologically loaded. It's a phrase that you get again and again and again through the Old Testament. You, you might recognise it, it may ring bells for you. Um, one example is um, Exodus 34, as Moses encounters the Lord on Sinai, that kind of archetypal encounter. Um, Exodus 34, verse 5, Then the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with him and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands and forgiving wickedness, rebellion and sin. And suddenly, Jonah 4, verse 2, we realise he's not just that kind of God with his people, It's not just for them. No, that's what he's actually like. That is his character. And we saw last week this promise to Abraham in being a blessing to the nations is finally fulfilled in Jesus and in the message of him taken to the ends of the earth. But we get glimpses of this blessing to the nations right through the Old Testament before Jesus. See, for example, when the people leave Egypt, it's not just them, but there are, there's a load of God-fearing Egyptians too, we read, that they're coming to join the party, they're coming to worship God in the desert. Or for example, in Ruth, as Richard Weston showed us last term, this faithful God-fearing refugee from Moab, who joins the people of God, not as an embarrassment, not as someone just a bit awkward, but no, the grandmother of King David. Or for example, when um, King Solomon finally finishes the temple, he constructs the temple, and listen to what he prays, 1 Kings 8. Um, As for the foreigners who do not belong to your people, Israel, but have come from a distant land because of your name, for they will hear of your great name and your mighty hand and your outstretched arm. When they come and pray toward this temple, then hear from heaven, your dwelling place. Do whatever the foreigners ask of you, so that all the peoples of the earth may know your name and fear you, as do your own people Israel, and may know that this house I have built bears your name. And what's striking is that Jonah in the belly of the fish longs for this temple. But this temple at its heart has a missionary focus so that all the peoples of the earth may know God's name and fear him. At the heart of the temple was a blessing to the nations. But the danger can be we have such a blind spot. A blind spot of God's extraordinary love for his world and for those outside the church. Even for those people who are not like us. And too easily all our discussions and our thoughts and our budget even becomes about what's going on inside and how we run an organisation and how we think he's kind of really just about us and pleased with us and, and only about us. But actually the book is left hanging at the end, 4 verse 11, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh in which there are more than 120,000 people? We can't tell their right hand from their left. And also many animals. 
That's what is left ringing in Jonah's ears and in our ears. And the reason Jonah is here in the Bible, well, it will have served as a challenge for God's people before Jesus, no doubt. But it's there in part because it's a mirror for us. And it shows what our heart is like and what we think God is like and how we deserve grace in some sense, but not, not them. <laughs> Seriously, Lord. And in a world, a divided world of repugnant cultural others with lots of division and hatred. And Jonah is a book for our times. For people like us with hearts like this. And so I don't know who the Ninevites are in your world. Those, those people whom you think are beyond the pale. Those people who if they walked into church this morning, you would wonder what they're doing here. How they think they could come to a place like this. Harvey Weinstein. Suicide bombers. Paedophiles. People who vote blue or people who vote red. Militant atheists. The kind of people who write comments on internet articles or newspaper articles. Local bullfinch perpetrators who are serving their time at this point. In some sense, hypothetical people out there somewhere. Or then people in our little worlds, in our lives, less hypothetical, more, more real. People who have hurt us, people whom we struggle to forgive, people whom we resent even. People whose presence kind of hang over us, what they did or what they said. There's something profoundly human to hold grudges, at least in these broken bodies. To, to not be generous, to, to want to deny some people grace. But ours is a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, even with the Ninevites. I'm struck in chapter 4 by the... Um, the theme of anger. It says God is slow to anger, but chapter 4 is all about Jonah's anger. So verse 1, he's angry about the Lord relenting. Verse 4, God asks him, is it right for you to be angry? Verse 9, the, the Lord grows this plant and wilts this plant. And God said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, I'm so angry I wish I were dead. Jonah is furious, but God is slow to anger. It's as if Jonah's saying, I knew, I knew I couldn't trust you, Lord. You and your compassion for people. What is it with you? You love people. It can just erupt at any time, Lord. I knew it. That was why I legged it. I don't know where this hits, really the reality of the pain of what you're going through at this point, of where there are people in your world whom you struggle with, people you perhaps need to forgive and you know you do but you can't, a spouse, a child, a friend, a group of people, someone in this room even, 
But if they turned up at church, it will make things really hard. I, I don't know you particularly or what's going on. I do know what our God is like. I do know that he teaches us to pray, forgive us our sins as we forgive those who sin against us. And I know that might not be easy. We live in a very diverse area in East Oxford. There's a real breadth to this patch, to the city more generally. There's lots of division. There are lots of different people groups. But if ours is a God like this, and if he really is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love, who who relents from sending calamity, then I take it we need to chew over how we apply this to our lives, to reaching those around us with this kind of a God, the kind of love he has for them. So this last week I chewed over how we can grow in this, what this kind of means, what's the cash value for us. I I take it we're all a bit too much like Jonah. I think that's not just me. I take it there will be people in our worlds whom we will struggle with. There are people whom we think deserve grace and who don't deserve grace, which is a slight contradiction in terms. But I wanted to ask three questions as we get better at this. The first one is this, that is, who am I in the book of Jonah? And I think there's more than one answer to this. Clearly there's a sense in which we read Jonah and we are Jonah in one sense. In fact, Jonah is something of a unique one among the minor prophets because you don't really get his prophecy written down. You don't really know what he says. And I think the message of Jonah is not what he says, but the message of Jonah is who he is. Do you see that? What he is like and what he learns about God. That is the message. It's not so much the content, but it's the character. That's what the book is there for. So the sense in which I'm Jonah, under the new covenant, we all speak for the Lord, Acts 2. We have this message of the gospel of grace. We're to to where appropriate and possible we speak it to others we teach them of Christ we tell them their their need of him and their trust need to trust in him but I wonder if too quickly we can end up at Jonah and we read ourselves into the story as him which we are meant to but I wonder in one very real sense that as we read Jonah who am I in the book you know naturally I'm a Ninevite Naturally, if we're a believer here this morning, then we are ones whose wickedness has come up before the Lord and he's seen what we're like and he knows us and our hearts and our selfishness and while we were still far off, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And yet, we're those who've been forgiven, who are loved, who have received his compassion and his grace to us he has been slow to anger to us he has shown abounding love and you see if I see myself as a Ninevite naturally undeserving of God's grace 
then maybe maybe I'll be more likely to understand that it's not something I've deserved or earned. And I'll see the wonder of grace afresh again and I'll share that with others and I'll rejoice in grace afresh. And all kinds of undeserving people might hear that message from me because I recognise I am undeserving. Even the repugnant cultural others. Even those people in my world whom whom I don't really want to share grace with, who have hurt me, even enemies. And if you're not someone who's trusted Christ, let me urge you to come to him and admit what you're like and to receive him yourself. Because he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. In fact, he loves you so much he sent his son that he might die in your place, that you might trust him and be forgiven. So who am I in the book of Jonah? I'm something of a Ninevite, naturally. How did Jonah get this so wrong? Second question. You ask that, you think, come on, you're a professional prophet, you're a mouthpiece for the Lord. How have you got this so wrong, Jonah? Why are you so mucked up and so messy? Just a a chapter or so earlier from the belly of the fish, from the very depths you get the height of the book, and everything's hopeful, verse 8 and 9, the top of page 929, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them, but I, with shouts of grateful praise, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will make good. I will say, salvation comes from the Lord. He, he knows these things. Look, he knows them but he doesn't really know them. His words are true, but there's this deliberate irony in them as they give us a window into his heart. He knows these things, but he, he doesn't know these things. And it's like us, when we tick the belief box, say, look, I am doctrinally sound, I know these things, I can sing these things even, But then functionally we live as if we're serving other things. Other things that matter more to us. Idols. See verse 8? Whom we are bowing down to. So I know I'm saved by grace. But the reason I'm driven to live like this is that while human approval in one sense is more important to me than Jesus. Jonah knew these truths. But these truths hadn't impacted. And so Christians can be just as anxious as folk who aren't Christians or as driven to succeed as those who aren't or as concerned for how we look as people who aren't or focused on money as people who aren't or whatever it might be. At those moments, we've, we've lost sight of him. We can tick the box, agree to who he is, who we are in Christ, but then functionally, on a Monday morning, we find we're serving and driven by all kinds of other gods. So Jonah knows salvation comes from the Lord, he knows what God is like, but he doesn't. He's made a God whom he is happy and comfortable with, but it's not the true God, it's an idol in one sense. 
And you see that as true, as God relents upon sending calamity to the Ninevites and how Jonah responds to it. Now I'm pretty hopeful, um, along with others who have written on Jonah, that finally he comes to believe and to trust in the true God. Not just the God whom Jonah wants him to be, but the God actually whom he is. Why do you think that? Why is there confidence in that? Because someone must have told us, he must have told the story to somebody. And who would ever tell a story in which at every single step you look like such a fool? Except a man who's been gripped by grace. Whose grace has done its work in him and changed him. So how did Jonah get this so wrong? In the same way that we do. In the same way that we can tick a box, we can assent to a truth, agree with a truth, but then not live according to that truth. There's a prayer for us to be a people who truly know him, who who know who God is and serve him. And trust him even in those areas of his character that we just find hard. His love and his grace for people who we think are beyond the pale. So who am I in the book of Jonah? Foundationally, initially, I'm something of an Ninevite. How did Jonah get this so wrong? Because he knew God but he didn't know God. The final question is, who is God in the story? That is, that is when my heart in its ugliness is, is revealed by books like this, when I struggle with God's grace and his kindness for others, for all kinds of people, even those whom I don't think deserve a second chance, when I see too much of myself in Jonah, when the book works like the mirror it's meant to, revealing who I am, Then 4 verse 2 is a verse for me as well. He's gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in love. He's overflowing with grace to me, even when his grace to others is a stumbling block for me. Does that make sense? When his grace shown to others reveals in me my lack of grace, then I go back to him and see he is patient and kind, slow to anger, abounding in love. Even when we see how furious Jonah is as revival breaks out in Nineveh. So even then God still engages with him and is patient and kind and good to him. Seeking to teach him, persuade him. Even then God shows his love to Jonah. Let me pray for us. Lord, we find books like this in one sense so challenging because they act as mirrors to us and our hearts that they show us how we long for grace ourselves but easily don't want it shown to others or they show us how we can tick boxes to say that we know what you're like but they also reveal how little we know of you and who you are. So we find them so challenging, but we find them so encouraging because we're left 
gazing upon you and your grace and your compassion, your love, your patience with people like us, your patience with the Ninevites, your patience with Jonah, your patience with us. We thank you that at the cross we see the depths of your extraordinary love for us. Thank you that as we have bread and wine in a bit we will see those truths enacted afresh. Change us please more into your likeness. Open our mouths that we might speak to others of you. In Jesus' name. Amen.